You are listening to Cinema de Morin, recorded in Pittsburgh, PA, and hosted by Justin Morgan and Chuck Phillips. We are currently discussing the films of Stanley Kubrick. Today's episode will focus on Kubrick's horror, Magnum Obus, and Cinematic Triumph. The Shining. Little pigs, little pigs, let me come in. by the hair on your chinny-chin-chin? Then I'll huff, and I'll puff, and I'll blow your house in. Serious? No. 
Nothing serious. Just a little problem with the uh, old sperm bank upstairs. <laughs> Nothing I can't handle, Lloyd. Thanks. Women can't live with them, can't live without them. Son of a bitch. <laughs> I'd do anything for him. Any fucking thing for him. That bitch. As long as I live, she'll never let me forget what happened. discussing The Shining on Cinema de More. We discussed it during a Stephen King month on my previous podcast, but it's a film that we needed to revisit. Yeah, not technically. It was just that other assorted discussion we had. A lot of our discussions that happened during our infancy were lost in bad audio mixes, although I do think we've had a lot of great conversations in the past. But I'm excited to return to the Overlook Hotel one more time. The Shining is a film that I've watched countless times. I watched it on New Year's Eve of last year, and 30 films later... I do unfortunately count. I'm watching it again. I never tire of the plot, and with each new rewatch, I find something new to appreciate. Chuck and I will have a casual conversation about the film while picking at it ever so lightly, or deeply, to put a finger on exactly where our love of this film comes from. Do you want me to dive into the plot? <laughs> you can. I, f- I felt like that. Your your pause was like you were getting ready, and I was like, oh, what's he going to say? What's he going to do? I do take long pauses. <laughs> The story of The Shining centers around Jack Torrance, played by Jack Nicholson. Jack's an aspiring writer and recovering alcoholic who takes a position at the Overlook Hotel in Colorado 
as the caretaker during the hotel's off-season. He's joined by his wife, Wendy, played by Shelley Duvall, and his son, Danny Torrance, played by Danny Lloyd. Danny is gifted with a unique ability known as The Shining, which consists of several different psychic abilities. As a winter storm traps and isolates the Torrances in the Overlook, Jack's sanity begins to deteriorate due to the supernatural forces of either the hotel's ghosts or the unattapped abilities that his son is experiencing. I go back and forth with each viewing. Danny clearly has an effect on his father, but are the ghosts real? That's for you to decide. Yeah, I mean, I know, I guess we'll we'll, we'll probably bring it up later on too or come back to it at other points, but I know that's the partially the biggest thing that Stephen King has an issue with. Not only just the, the general plot changes, but I know he doesn't, that he felt that his book was supposed to be more of a more of a take on like a real life thing, which was his alcoholism that he had been dealing with for years out of his life. And this was supposed to be more a manifestation of that than the ghosts. The ghosts were just supposed to be kind of a thing that is seen and affects Danny and kind of haunts the hotel in general. But that wasn't the primary driving force behind the the terror in his book. It was more like that real life horror of your life like spiraling out of control because you're you're an alcoholic and how much that damages you. I enjoy the book a great deal, and I think that the character of Jack Torrance in the book, I'm with Stephen King in that that character arc of loving dad to psychotic maniac, it feels earned or deserved. But this movie doesn't do that. As he said, he Jack Nicholson looks like he would kill his family at the very beginning when he's driving them to the hotel. He already has that, like... That very like angry tone that's just like like you uh, you've mentioned the oh don't worry he saw it on the television like he yeah. already sounds like he's gonna kill his family like he's already hates them. We must really be high up. The air feels so different. Mm-hmm. Dad. Yes. I'm hungry. Well, you should have eaten your breakfast. We'll get you something as soon as we get to the hotel, okay? Okay, Mom. Hey, wasn't it around here that the Donner Party got snowbound? I think that was farther west in the Sierras. What was the Donner Party? They were a party of settlers in covered wagon times. They got snowbound one winter in the mountains. They had to resort to cannibalism in order to stay alive. You mean they ate each other, huh? They had to, in order to survive. Jack, don't worry, Mom. I know all about cannibalism. I saw it on TV. See? It's okay. You saw it on the television. I've read a lot of things that Kubrick has said, which I also feel like are reasons why Stephen King hates it even more. Like, Kubrick's bad mouth the writing of the book. Apparently King wrote a screenplay for this that Kubrick never even bothered reading. Yeah. He liked the characters and the basic structure that is in the book, because he read the book, but he didn't think some of those things were going to translate very well to film without being a little bit ridiculous and possibly more comical than they are taken seriously he's right about uh, he, he, i think the biggest the biggest thing that he does i don't want to say fix or improve but like yeah the topiary animals changing that out for a maze which 
again, yeah, visually <laughs> big hedges shaped like animals coming to life is maybe more interesting in your head than it would actually be on the screen. So, I mean, I agree with him sometimes, although it is interesting that he that he didn't get along or, or yeah, didn't even bother to take any of King's suggestions or look at his scripts. And uh, like we discussed on his previous films, he loves working with authors like he seems. Uh, so I don't know if it's just he didn't respect King as an author. Like he kind of was like, no, I work with real authors. King's just like a, a dime store fiction guy. I'm pretty sure he called him a bad writer. So I, <laughs> I yeah, I feel like that's the that's the same thing that everyone gives King, like the people that people that say like, oh, you read Stephen King. That's not real books like you don't read real books like they always put it in the same category as you might as well be reading comics or children's books if you read Stephen King it's like oh, those aren't real he's not a real writer he's just a cheap hack that writes horror to scare people yeah I mean Kubrick has I guess he's been wanting to do horror movies for a long time uh, apparently he was up for the role of directing The Exorcist and I don't know exactly how that fell through but I think with The Shining, unless I have my timeline wrong, he was working on The Shining for about five years. And I think the book only came out three years before the movie. So he must have had some sort of like early privilege of reading the novel early and figuring out how they were going to adapt it or something. Yeah, I mean, I've I know I've heard that before of like sometimes like the publishers, I think, like send out early copies to, to different people because I've heard that before with other projects of like a guy read the read the rights and yeah he like tried to get a studio to to buy the rights to the film before it even before it was even published or something like that so i guess that must just be a, a common practice of any big writer that whenever they're writing things it's like oh yeah and we'll we'll send out copies to like the studios and see if they want to make a movie out of it because how many times has that happened that a even something as uh small as what the killing was that the one that a, the, a book had come out like a year before it had only it got written in like 58 and they made it yeah. in 59 like your years like that, are off, but yes. Yeah, I couldn't remember. The, I was forgetting the exact year that that, that was. But I think it's a 55 book and it came out in 56. That's right. Yeah, it was a little it was a little later there, but that definitely happened. So, well, I guess this film proves that I'm not a purist. I'm fine with an adaptation kind of taking bold steps. And The Shining is a prime example of I do think that it's a great book by Stephen King. And I also think it's one of the greatest movies ever made, especially in the horror genre. But Almost everything about that movie, and I know that sometimes people say that Kubrick's kind of torturous, especially with, I think this, I don't know if it's been taken away from him, but I know like I saw that the Guinness Book of World Records for takes was Shelley Duvall on the stairs scene. They did it like 127 times. I guess like winding it back a little bit. He was a huge fan of Jack Nicholson. He was a huge fan of Shelley Duvall. He thinks that she's a really good actress. And from my understanding, he he's talked about how difficult it is for actors because like first they got to learn their lines. Then they have to learn the emotional side of it. Then they have to learn their marks. And now we're taking long takes. And he basically kept talking about how she kept bucking it up, breaking character or something. That's where it kind of got to the point where after doing take after take, Shelley Duvall is like this is torture like why am i doing this and, and most people say that too because apparently he tried to cast slim pickens as the scatman carruthers character dick holleran and even though the character was written as black man but slim pickens said since dr strangelove was such a rough production that he didn't want to work with stanley kubrick again so like it just <laughs> it happens time and time again 
I don't know that Kubrick worked with the same actor more than twice, I feel like, on any of his movies. Like, there's Kirk Douglas he did two movies with. Sterling Hayden he did the two films with. He worked with Peter Sellers on two movies. Like, it feels like that's everyone's limit, two or less with Kubrick. That first one, I guess that went pretty well. Then they're doing the second one, and they're like, okay, I'm, I've had enough of that. Excluding Vivian Kubrick, who was in four of Kubrick's films, mostly as background characters, the one actor that has worked with Kubrick the most is Joe Turkle. In The Killing, he played Tiny. In Paths of Glory, he played Private Arnold. And in The Shining, Lloyd. Everyone else is the two or less. I'm sure I'm misquoting him, but I think Jack Nicholson said that he was really grateful for the experience, but he would never do it again. That's the yeah. only thing that he'd ever do with him. Kubrick admired Jack Nicholson so much. He wanted him from this part from the beginning. And I guess that they also kind of collaborated a little bit because Nicholson was going through a divorce. And I guess he's the one that kind of came up with that idea. And it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie, too, where Wendy keeps interrupting him while he's trying to write. Get a lot written today? Yes. Hey, the weather forecast said it's going to snow tonight. What do you want me to do about it? Come on, hon. Don't be so grouchy. I'm not being grouchy. I just want to finish my work. Okay, I understand. I'll come back later on with a couple of sandwiches for you, and maybe you'll let me read something then. Wendy, <clears throat> let me explain something to you. Whenever you come in here and interrupt me, you're breaking my concentration. You're distracting me. And it will then take me time to get back to where I was. Understand? Yeah. Fine. And we're going to make a new rule. Whenever I'm in here and you hear me typing, whether you don't hear me typing, whether the fuck you hear me doing in here, when I'm in here, that means that I am working. That means don't come in. Think you can handle that? Yeah. Fine. Why don't you start right now and get the fuck out of here? He had written some sort of scene like that to be added into the movie. I guess Kubrick had final say on exactly what was said. Because Nicholson back in the day, he was writing, he was acting, he was doing a lot of things like the Hellman Westerns and stuff like that popping up in like Dennis Hopper movies and... He was more of a creative type, been kind of out of the game for a while. I can't even think of the last thing he was in, Bucket List or something. Yeah, probably something around there. I mean, his last like big, because I don't even want to say like Bucket List is like big, but like his last major thing, basically The Departed. And he filmed it a couple days. He just did three days worth of work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's like his last major huge performance that I can think of. And then, yeah, he was in like a couple of the smaller like comedies or something there here and there. Kubrick also did say that, I mean, he was still along the lines of exactly what Stephen King pointed out, that he wanted somebody that was on the verge of a breakdown when they went out there. He didn't necessarily want that whole transition. He wanted it to be kind of like at the end. And maybe from a movie standpoint, that would make more sense. Obviously, I've seen full character arcs before, but to make a loving, caring father go to like a murderous villain in two and a half hours, is, can you do it? Believably, maybe you can't. I see what you're saying there. Yeah, there has to, you almost have to have it be like already at the part way point of him, like kind of already going crazy. He has to be somewhat there 
at the beginning. He doesn't completely go off the rails until that scene like you were talking about, the one where Wendy interrupts him. That is really like the first time that we really see him go crazy completely. We we see like bits and pieces of it up till then of him. You know, he always has like some sort of remark like about the he saw it on television. Oh, isn't that great? Like he always has some sort of like remark putting his wife and kid down every once in a while. He hates his family. Uh, we, we very clearly... He does. We clearly see like some of the some of the other things, you know, when Wendy asks if he can take her on a walk somewhere and he's just like, I really got to start on my writing. Like, I don't have time to to hang out with you and the kid basically already like, look, I'm going to ignore you for like the next six months. You're just here. Don't interrupt me. Don't do anything else. Now, I think there are definitely two strong horror elements to this movie. The strongest being the fact that somebody you love turning against you is probably the more prominent one. And then it's a ghost story secondary. But it's really strange the way that it works because ghosts don't play a role in, in it until like at least halfway. Well, maybe not a little less than halfway through. Yeah, yeah it, it's really weird because it doesn't work like a typical ghost story. Essentially, I guess it has to count. It does. You're getting the exact opposite information at the beginning of the movie when you start with Jack and he's getting his interview with Almond, And Almond says that it's a decent job. Nothing really happens. Oh, except that yeah, one time. Yeah, <laughs> one time we did have this incident, and this is what happened. This guy was the caretaker 10 years ago. He chopped up his family with an axe. Shortly after, we're introduced to Scatman Carruthers' character. We're basically the only time in the movie that really we have a character that's familiar with what The Shining is. You mean The Shining? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> For copyright Unless purposes. Unless you want to get sued. Chuck's talking about The Simpsons there. <laughs> get away, you little! No, no, go easy on the wee one. His father's gonna go crazy and chop them all into haggis. What's haggis? <gasps> Boy, you read my thoughts. You've got the shining. You mean shining. Shh, you want to get sued? Now look, boy, if your dad goes gaga, you just use that shin of yours to call me and I'll come a-running. But don't be reading my mind between four and five. That's Willie's time. It's always one of my favorites. I don't know why that line always sticks with me. Don't you mean The Shining? Not if you want to. <laughs> if you don't want to get sued. He has a talk with Danny, and he tells Danny that he might see things, but there's nothing that can hurt him. So the information that we're getting is a little odd for what happens in the movie. And there's this really great, I think it's like 30 minutes worth of your time, two-part thing on YouTube called There Are No Ghosts in the Overlook or something like that. For the most part, I think there's a lot of good stuff in there. It is more on the convincing side, but Kubrick himself has said that the interactions with the ghosts are genuine. But people have been able to pick this movie apart so much. I have I have some thoughts on that. Yeah, let's go with it. That I that I thought while watching. So I haven't seen your video, so you feel free yeah. to tell me if I say something that sounds like something that they describe. But oh yeah, I can. I I, I do think every time I watch it, I this is a good movie. Like you kind of do pick up on some different things every time you watch it to try to get that down. Like how you're saying the where where's the line between just real horror and something like the more supernatural ghost. I guess this also like makes me think kind of tying in. I know we're we could do it as a separate episode one day, hopefully, but Dr. Sleep kind of adds, I feel like, some of these ideas in the way that they incorporate a lot of that later. We've on done a Dr. Sleep episode. That, well, technically, <laughs> yeah, but it's like now that we're like out of order, oh, yeah. it feels it feels weird. We're like backwards. We, we did the sequel first. 
but something like that where it feels like it connects because i think about the ghosts obviously Ullman says that this like one thing happened before so almost you'd realistically think if there were actually like ghosts or more of a presence that how has this only happened once before 10 years ago like how does this not happen like every year that people see ghosts and they lose their mind it almost makes me think it is more that it has to do with something about danny's present there's something about he has so much of the shining that it like it creates these illusions and they become that strong almost to the thought of like was somebody in grady's family did they have the shining too that like drew these spirits out and that's why he lost his mind because again you'd almost think if people were seeing this stuff every year it'd be a more common occurrence that oh yeah everyone knows this place is haunted like people die every year but it only happened 10 years ago and then it only happens when danny gets there nothing seems to be out of the ordinary when jack's there with everybody else together but as soon as danny shows up suddenly danny sees the little girls like almost as soon as he gets there that's one of the first ghostly images you see is the two girls in the game room with him as soon as he gets there it's when it starts what do we know about the shining the shining in general is all kinds of things like a precog ability hallucinatory control people yeah telekinetic tracking people yeah yeah it's all yeah it's all different things which again we get more into in doctor sleep and again that's the other thing that having that film and the book that king wrote later on is the sequel to it kind of gives it almost gives more of an idea to the fact that the hotel responds to people with the shining and the fact that it seems like largely the hotel was abandoned but i I don't know that any other things necessarily happen between the time danny leaves and when he comes back in dr sleep in the film it seems like when he tells abra and he tells rosie the hat this place feeds on people with the shining like as soon as he walks in the place starts coming alive again as if it's been dead for years but as soon as he steps in so that's where it does make me think that there aren't truly ghosts haunting there it is just like the whole place is built as something that pulls the shining out of people but it only happens because danny's there yeah i think in the king book there were a couple murders and stuff there it, yeah it might have been referenced it was more like a, a haunted house in the book the general gist of the video is exactly what you're getting into it's that danny is so strong with the shining and jack has the shining too but he doesn't have it on the level that danny does But if you watch the movie while he's being interviewed and he's being told, the video points us out too, about this murder that happened 10 years ago. That's when Danny has his seizure in the bathroom at home. Yeah. Danny knows he's heard this story. So these are thoughts that are in his head. And the video also pointed out too that nobody's seeing the same ghosts. You think if it was a very specific ghost that they all saw, but there's not one ghost that any two people see. Also, they're like, why are some ghosts happy and partying? And then there's other ghosts that are like apparently brutally murdered and continuously going through that. And as far as the movie puts it, that there is nothing that happens besides that single murder that happened 10 years prior to it. They do mention in the movie, though, that it had been built on ancient Indian burial grounds. They do say that. Oh, because they they didn't move the bodies. (laughs) They only moved the headstones. They do allude in the book that it's an evil place. And I think Dr. Sleep, they say something about how it worsens if you have the shining type of, like, it's just a bad place that tries to eat up that ability. I mean, the video does have lots of good points in it that I think are somewhat accurate. Like, Jack clearly has the shining, too. And we know that if you drink, that subdues the Shining's ability. And if you don't have anybody able to describe what's going on, can't quite possibly explain it, what do you do? He probably resorts to drinking to like kind of numb that too. But the general idea of the video is that 
Danny starts projecting his thoughts and feelings very strongly into his father and eventually into his mother too. The one thing that the video pointed out that I really liked was that the way they describe it is Jack essentially wants to become a kid again. A kid in the way that he doesn't want to have any sort of responsibilities. And the hotel's a place that takes away all those responsibilities. And it does a good job of pointing out that when you see the three characters, there's only one character that is ever working, and it's Wendy. She's the only one that's going around, checking the boiler, yeah. preparing food. Jack's just always writing. Yeah, and Jack's the one that, you know, you're rooting for this. You know, like, I have responsibility, but you never see Jack having any no. any sort of responsibility whatsoever. No. Yeah, he's he's looking for, like, a free paycheck to just sit around and, and write his, his novel. The videos have been pretty good, too. Like, they're definitely interesting and definitely worth seeking out. But they were talking about how when Danny talks to his imaginary friend, Tony, he talks to him in the mirror. And when Jack's talking to Grady after he spills that drink on him, he's facing the mirrors, too. And Grady's convincing Jack Torrance that he should murder his family, which is really interesting because that's when yeah. Danny writes red rum on the wall, which is backwards, and you can't see it unless you're looking in the mirror, which is what how Wendy sees it. Jack's also, when he talks to Lloyd, there's mirrors behind the bar, so that'd be the same thing. Like, like again, he's he is just sitting there talking to himself, basically, essentially. When, when Wendy comes in and finds him at the bar, he's, he'd be talking to the mirror behind the bar. Yeah, and I've kind of took the idea of the alcohol that he drinks is not real. It's more so him like dr no. drinking up the idea of the of the hotel, I guess. Yeah, well, that's that's the thing. Yeah, it's like it. Yeah, what what can and can't be real, and that's that's another thing that I think too is yeah that it's never it's never truly that, and I guess that's supposed to. I don't know if that like kind of makes it worse that it's literally just Jack going crazy. He can't even blame it as, as, oh, I started getting drunk again. And it's like, well, you're not drinking real alcohol. Like you're just thinking you are. It's all, it's still just all in your mind. Here's another good one, a good point that it brings up too. When uh, Danny goes to room 237 and he ends up getting hurt in there. Yeah, we never see him get hurt. We never have the confirmation that anything actually hurt him. And Halloran already said that he can't be hurt. The ghost can't hurt him. During the traumatic stuff his dad was going through at that moment in his sleep and everything, we know that the kid had seizures and could have passed out, hurt himself. It's totally believable. And they talk about how, like, when Jack goes up there and he sees the woman, he goes up there looking for a woman. And it's not necessarily something that Danny wouldn't have been lured in, like, the same way. So, like, there's a lot of interesting things like that where it makes Danny, like, the villain. But he's also just, like, an adolescence that doesn't quite understand what he's doing to people. When Wendy sees the weird sex thing going on with the uh, the dog man and, the, and that, that other guy, it was kind of loose. But they're like... I don't know. He's probably trying to comfort his mother, and he's probably heard thoughts of somebody talking about doggy style. That's his kid interpretation of it, not that it's like a, a bad thing or something like that. And like he makes something horrific when he's trying to comfort his mom. But if you think about it, if you, it is accurate. If, if you have some sort of telekinesis, possibly with The Shining, then Danny could have rolled that ball to himself and Jack could have let himself out of the pantry. They didn't need a ghost to do it for them. Because I think that's the only moment where you could say, like, there, ha there has to be something else. But the only thing that's really confirmed is that Danny has some sort of abilities. There's some supernatural ability that exists. Yeah. Otherwise, that little shit wouldn't be predicting that his dad was going to call because he got the job. <laughs>
there's a lot to think about with this movie there there's a lot a lot of interesting stuff going on i do like that idea that well, yeah what's real what isn't uh i mean kubrick could say hey there are definitely ghosts and then be like i shot it like there weren't any ghosts <laughs> they shot this in london on a sound stage and they only used this hotel in Colorado for the exterior. And it was the hotel's request to change the room number because they didn't want people to be like afraid to check into room 217, which is what it is in the book. So they made it into room 237 because 237 did not exist in that floor plan. I think the hotel said that their most popular room is still 217 from that film. Like mm -hmm. people keep it's like people still know. Yeah, they know and they want to check in and they want to to be in that room. Uh, there's a documentary called Room 237. Uh, it really breaks things down to uh, an exhausting level. <laughs> Some things are right where they talk about the spatial inconsistencies. And we know how Kubrick is. He's a very like exact person. But like how he walks into the hotel and goes into the Allman's office and then there's a window. But they're like, this doesn't make any sense because it would be the middle of the hotel. Like, it's not on the end. It's not where there would be light naturally being able to come into this place. Yeah, weird, scary stuff like that. They had a deleted scene at the end they filmed, which was Danny and, and Wendy talking to Allman again. And he was like inviting him back to his place, you know, for the summer or something. And he gives Danny the ball, kind of puts evil intent that Allman like brought them there on purpose to like feed them to the hotel or something. But Kubrick dropped it. I think he said it didn't test well, but I kind of doubt that he gave a fuck about how it tested. <laughs> so I, I think that it just didn't work in the, the grand scheme of things. But yeah, yeah, I mean, there's so much I love about this movie. I love that Danny is so strong with his shining abilities that he's able to reach out to Scatman Crothers, who comes all the way from Miami to Colorado to be... can't believe he left that awesome house. Oh, I love his... His, his, his great artwork. His house the is really funny. Like, was like such a such an eighties thing. The wood paneling everywhere. The bedroom is funny. The way he shoots it is funny. Like the way it keeps zooming out and you just slowly like at first it zooms out from the TV and then you just slowly that picture comes into view <laughs> and then like it's not even just a picture, the but it's like he's got like shot. four lamps in that room, which is like makes yeah. it just like that's it's, one it's too many lamps. It's a weird room. Yeah. Then they then he reverses the shot and zooms out on Scatman Crothers face to reveal the other painting above above his bed on that side. I mean, they do do a lot of good plants and payoffs and stuff. And my favorite is the fact that when he shows up, Jack almost immediately takes him out. So he doesn't ever portray that like hero role. There's so much yeah. build up to him getting out to that hotel. I like when he's calling for the snow cat and he's yeah. like, yeah, those people were a real bunch of assholes up there. Now I got to go yeah. clean up their mess. Completely unreliable assholes. But essentially he's there so that they can leave yeah. because Jack destroys the radio and he destroys Sabotage the other snow cat. Else, yeah. I do love that scene where he, when he walks in uh, and we see Jack, he's got the axe and he's walking around. The way they Hello? play that, just the way he keeps walking and you're just Anybody waiting here? for him to pop out from behind a pillar and you're like, is it going to be this one? Is it going to be this one? Like he just keeps walking and it's that slow shot of just Scatman Crothers like yelling for everybody uh, and he just keeps going and you're just waiting for it every time until he finally hits that last one and just jumps out at him. Ah! 
And if you watch this enough times, you get the geography down really well with where they're at in the hotel, where you see Nicholson when he hears him yelling, Scatman yelling. It's literally like that opening that you see. It's like right by that that pillar. Anybody? But yeah, you generally know when they when the camera makes that turn, that's where Jack was. So he's got to be somewhere there in the room. And it is just so fucking violent. Like fucking murder him. Oh, him like snapping and deciding he wants to kill his whole family. I do think that Shelley Duvall was well cast. Kubrick said that he purposely went with her because he said that he didn't think that she was that attractive and she didn't play the character like super strong-willed like the character is in the book and he's like i don't think somebody that's as strong-willed as the character in the book would be putting up with jack torrance's shit (laughs) so like i needed a character that felt like they would they would be there and they do put up with this type of stuff because i mean what we see him berate her and she's like, I'll come back with sandwiches and maybe you'll let me read your script. And he's like, Wendy, let me explain something to you. <laughs> and he's just so mean to her. And I mean, we know from the past that he had dislocated Danny's arm. Like, And uh, I do like how when he explains it to Lloyd where he's like, the little shit, he was in all my stuff. And I got mad and I, I pulled him and I pulled him too hard and I hurt him and I didn't mean to hurt him. Jack Nicholson has a lot of really good moments like that in this movie. He does. He feels really open and they feel very real. He's ashamed of himself. He's like, he's ashamed of what he hasn't been able to accomplish thus far. I, he, I think he does feel pretty vulnerable for the most part. Even when Wendy's like, you, you did it. You heard him. And she's got Danny who's all torn up and she holds him and runs away. And Jack's like reaction is like, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like at yeah, all. Yeah. yeah. He's all confused. Yeah, it's like that moment, and uh, I don't know why, it makes me laugh every time I see the movie, is that one shot of him just staring out the window, just that yeah. blank, he's just got that black turtleneck yeah. on it, he just, he's just staring at nothing. <laughs> it's like, you just imagine he probably just sat like that for hours that day, like didn't even write anything, he probably just sat staring out the window for hours like that, not moving at all. His masterpiece. Just being creepy. Yeah, he was a teacher, and he got fired for like alcoholism. I feel like that's in the books and more so in Doctor I think Sleep. In the book, I think in the book, wasn't it? Well, it was like alcoholism, but I think in the book too, wasn't it like he was like sleeping with his students or something like that? Possibly. I think that's like a, it's like a minor thing. I mean, it's still basically all blame. It becomes a huge thing was, for Doctor Sleep. Like like you were saying, we, we have done a Doctor Sleep episode, but I do, I do enjoy the fact that film probably does. I, I really don't feel like there is any better way of merging those two separate worlds the fact that they were able to basically pull enough of king's book and enough of kubrick's film together to make it seem so so natural and seamless that he he puts everything together in just the right way and again everything that they do at the finale when it's back to the overlook hotel like he does film it and it feels like it's it fits in there like the rest of the movie doesn't necessarily feel like a kubrick movie it it has its own you know kind of identity it has that new king voice is what i call it old age yeah. stephen king's narrative voice is really strong in that movie but when they do finally show back up at the overlook hotel it starts to pick up that kubrickian style again like the mm. camera feels different and uh, i think ian mcgregor is a really good danny i think he really did a, a great job yeah he's great in it and that's that's definitely one 
that I feel like that is most people. I think a lot of people do like both versions of it. And most people know, most people like understand that there's differences and like, you can have one that's maybe your favorite. Like some people I'm sure do prefer the book and I'm sure there's other out there that are like, well, he fixed some of the problems in the book with the film. Like he made some of the things make more sense. Or like I would even go as far to say that he's not fixing problems as much as he's making something work visually that didn't really yeah. work, like worked well as a book, but not well yeah. as a film. And, and like I said, Dr. Sleep does really feel like uh, he definitely did come from that perspective of like he knew it was a good book. He knew it was a good movie and was like, OK, how can I put both of these together? Make make everyone happy, make the people happy that read that like the book, make people happy that like the movie make Stephen King okay oh, with yeah, it he since nailed he had it. the... I didn't even like... I liked Dr. Sleep except for the end, and then the movie, like, fixed it for me. Like, and yeah. the movie <laughs> made it, like, so much better. So I, 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 I would even say I prefer the movie to the to the yeah. book. The end, the end of Dr. Sleep is him basically finally giving King his ending of The Shining yeah. by, by burning the, the Overlook Hotel to the ground, which is already... which was already done in the, in the book. So, uh, like I said, I, yeah, I... I think he does really well. And uh, yeah, I guess you brought up the what everyone's criticism of King typically is, is like, I don't know, he gets the end and then he's just like, ah, I don't know what to do here. I'm just just going to end it. We're just going to we're just going to throw something out there. And, uh, he does a good job of building up to the end and then it's over like in, you know, a flash. Just yeah, everything fixed itself. And I'm like, are you kidding me? That was just like too, <laughs> too simple. Yeah. Yeah, this had uh, Doctor Sleep has its Home Alone vibes, where they're like, you know what? I got the perfect place to bring them to, where we'll have the advantage. Yeah. You can get some traps. Set up. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. He does. He does a good way of like, because Scatman Crothers is supposed to survive in the in the book, but instead, it's just like, well, yeah, he died, but Danny has the Shining, so Danny can just talk to him when he's dead. Like, it doesn't even matter that he died. He might as well still be alive. <laughs> yeah. For all intents and purposes, he might as well still be alive. Another thing, too, that they discuss in how color is associated, the red is associated with, like, freedom and lack of responsibility, which is, like, why Danny's almost all entirely in red. Jack starts with no red and then has red at the end by the time he, like, gets his jacket. And then Wendy only has red on when she's interacting with Danny. As you talk about, like, the visions and stuff that he sees, what's infamously known as, like, blood coming from the elevators could be a mixture of Jack's eating alcohol and how that color red's like associated with it might be like a red drink or something like that. I don't know how else to describe it. Yeah. And I mean, we did get to see again a couple of years ago, we saw Ready Player One, which was was Spielberg jumping back into like that Kubrick thing, basically jumping into The Shining beyond the characters being there that were from his film i did feel like he was it was shot like that style did the same thing that mike flanagan's film did where like when they were there like the style just totally changed and i think it was spielberg saying like i respect kubrick kubrick was my friend even though ai we talked about it slightly <laughs> is mainly a spielberg film with a kubrickian ending to it i would say yeah I don't know what it is with Kubrick. Everything just seems well thought out and well shot. They used a steady cam in this movie, which gave them the ability to go upstairs and follow the kid around. He's like on his big wheels or whatever he's riding around. The... Yeah. I can't believe how much food they got, too. It's like they get paid and they're like, and you can just eat whatever food you, you want. Just eat all yeah. of this. Yeah. Just eat however much you want. Just keep going. 
I would like to imagine that the only reason that Danny survives is because Jack just wouldn't take his family on a walk through that maze and he just couldn't figure that damn thing out. <laughs> Maybe if he'd have taken him for a walk, he'd know where he was going. Instead, he froze to death. I don't know why that was. That's that's like just my random thought was when she's like, don't you want to go for a walk? And he's like, I don't have time for walks. And then that's immediately when we see her and Danny going through the maze. And I'm like, I'm like, well, that's how Danny beat him. He couldn't figure out that maze if he'd had just taken the time. Yeah, I also love the uh, shot where he's looking at the model of the maze and it cuts yeah, to the actual good. maze. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Allman says, oh, I wouldn't go in that maze unless you can give yourself an hour to get out of it. Yeah. We know Danny's been in it before, so maybe he's more inept getting out of it. He knows where to go. Yeah, he knows the path. Jack was raging out with ghosts and shit like that, driven <laughs> mad, so kind of hard to find your way out. And he didn't really have a winter jacket on or anything. <laughs> he just had like on like yeah, a light he coat. He wasn't ready for it. I, I do love that ending, though, though maybe one of the best final shots yeah just that hard cut like the at first when he's he's screaming and at that point he's like not even making intelligible sounds anymore like he's he's just screaming yeah. and like Wah. danny slowly becomes like danny boy becomes like nothing yeah he's just like he's just screaming and then just that hard cut to him frozen yeah he like flops down in a sitting position There's even that music cue yeah it just stops there well, you know what's actually kind of interesting? It kind of goes back and forth between the cutting. A lot of cuts are really hard like that for like an effect. It is a lot of fades, though. The fades are was exactly what I was going to bring up. Kubrick said that he doesn't like fades and effects like that, but he said it helped not kill certain moods. And I also, he didn't say it, but I felt that it probably had the, something to do with the fact that it was a ghost story and there's something creepy about that lingering image for just like a few seconds. Yeah. The photo at the end of the movie wasn't extras. Did you know that it was an old photo yeah. that they painted Jack Nicholson onto. Hmm. And that video I watched brings up an interesting point too. If you want to believe that there are no ghosts, then how does Jack get into the photo? Their theory is that we don't necessarily ever see a picture of Jack or anything outside of what he actually looks like. And maybe Nicholson's how he perceives himself. Maybe he saw that photo of that guy that was like the center of attention. And that's what he wanted to become. Not the greatest of explanations, but... yeah. It is maybe the most confusing thing, I think, out of the yeah, entire movie. It feels like a lost one, like people being like, oh, they, they were dead the whole yeah. time, being like, oh, Jack Nicholson was there the whole time since 1921. If you want to think about it totally as a ghost perspective, it's just the hotel absorbing him. I mean, that's how I always took it, I guess, was just that it wasn't necessarily that he's been there before or that he's like been reincarnated or something like that. Like I've heard other people mention do say like the weird thing about like, oh, was he really there in 1921? And then did he like come back or something like that? Like the, those weird things. But that's kind of how I just interpreted. A modern day filmmaker would have probably shown that he's not in that photo. Probably. And then later when he had died there in the hotel. Show the picture once before and like make a big deal about like have Ullman point out, oh yeah, that was like our biggest party ever. New Year's Eve or, or uh, 4th of July yep. 1921. There you go. You screwed like, up. 
I know I almost I almost did it again. Everyone always does that because it feels like it should. There's a me- there's one going around where somebody literally wrote over top of it New Year's Eve, and I'm like, it's not New Year's Eve, and people are like, are you sure? And I'm like, yes, because the Overlook Hotel is not open. It's always closed in the winter. It's like it's one of those things. It's like, but the movie's so snowy and cold that everyone just always thinks about like, oh well, yeah, what would they be having a party for? Has to be New Year's Eve. It's the winter. That's what they're thinking of. But that's that's how I interpret everything. Like. The, the hotel just absorbs absorbs your energy again like kind of how we got in doctor sleep later on that's what they want they just want to feed on on the energy of people with the shining so uh, that's almost i feel like maybe maybe that's the only reason we see grady and his daughters but we don't see the wife maybe the wife didn't have any shining but maybe maybe grady and his kids had had shining to them and that's why we only see them because he because they do mention that his wife's there they might say it in doctor sleep or something they made it sound like every human being has a degree of shining it's like midichlorian <laughs> i guess so i need a midichlorian count <laughs> <laughs> Some people are stronger with it and some people just don't have enough in them. It's not like non-existent. So Wendy would have them too, even though Wendy is the weakest one at showing that she has them out of all. Hey, I believe Scatman Carruthers and his grandma said some people shine and some people don't. But you gotta, but you gotta remember too that Kubrick takes it from a folktale point of view. He says it's not a very scientific explanation. It's basically a feeling that's been passed down from person to person. So Scatman Crothers, he's doing his version of how he's grown up with it, as opposed to Jack, who's never had anyone explain it to him, and and he's like numbing it out with alcohol. Yeah. I think this is why this is one of my favorite movies and my favorite horror movies. It's not just the fact that I think that it is well shot. I like everything being centered. It just makes it off-putting and creepy. I have more fun with the ambiguity of it, of not knowing exactly what has happened. And I constantly change my mind. I've been like, oh, yeah, there's no ghost. I'm like, no, there has, there has to be ghosts. And then I'm like, you know what? That doesn't even matter. It's more so what Jack's going through. But his interactions that he has with his family when they're driving up and they're talking about cannibalism like you said he's like oh he saw it on the tv he knows exactly what it is (laughs) to when he's having the most real moment in the entire thing when he's talking to lloyd i like how he like berates lloyd too for not being very talkative or not having like he makes fun of him for having no personality it's on the house hmm I like to know who buys my drinks, Lloyd. But the house is creepy because, you know, that's a typical line of like an establishment saying, hey, we got your drinks covered for you. But the fact that the Overlook Hotel is at least to the viewers a haunted place. It's really fucking creepy when it's on the house. (laughs) I don't know if they're necessarily supposed to be comical. Uh, Well, they okay. They are definitely supposed to be comical when he spills that drink all over Jack and he's like, oh, good thing you didn't get any on yourself. And he taps him on the back and he like has that big handprint on him. That's funny. You do see that ghost that's like great party and he seems like he would be kind of like a a, like a butler-esque person, but he's not Grady. I don't know how to, to interpret every single one of them. But I do think there's a case of there's always maybe that there's always this great sense of unease. But realistically, projection does happen to people. You know what I mean? If you're working with three people and one person's miserable, doesn't it start to reciprocate? Doesn't it start to bring the mood down for everybody? Obviously, it's happening on a supernatural level in this movie, but there's some truth to that, you know? And I say it, and I say it again, when he has his meltdown about not being able to get back to where he was, I haven't had the meltdown. 
Uh, I'm not that person, but I've had that like, oh, God, you definitely took me out of it. It's going to take me forever to get me back there. <laughs> it's like I just need locked away and have silence and stuff. And it's weird because it's such, such a real moment. And I think that's where horror ends up being the best whenever it is too close to home. And how the fuck are they watching TV out there with no power cords? Huh? How about that? You got power cords and have telephone lines. That TV's not plugged into anything. How do you know? Did you see wires? No, because we only saw it from the front. Where the hell do you think the wires are? It's in the middle of the room. <laughs> there was you got a lot of extension cords. Ghost, it like straight into the ground behind the leg where you can't see it or something. Yeah. Do you think that is the loveliest hotel that you've ever seen, as Wendy says? Or she says, most beautiful hotel that she's ever seen. <laughs> uh, You know, it's okay. It's a hotel. Yeah, I don't think I would have been that impressed. I don't know. Maybe I'd have to be alive back in like... You'd have to be alive in 1980 <laughs> when you've never seen a hotel that big. Yeah, I don't the, really the know. The biggest you've ever seen is like a super Motel 6 or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. I feel like at least a tone setup is very uncomfortable. Even when people are there, I don't know what the hell they're doing out there. I guess it's just like a vacation spot or something. Wait, yeah, we're not even shown like... like yeah, it's like... Does the place have a pool? Does it have a? Does it have like a tennis court or something? We're never shown any of these things. And it, it does has make a you cool question, head, like, hedge maze. It's got the hedge maze going for it, and that's what Olman even says: is this spot was picked for its seclusion and isolation. I'm like, yeah. So what? What are people like doing there? Like, yeah. Why is it so big? You think it'd be like a cabin or something like that? Yeah. I don't want to ruin it for you, Chuck, but the Overlook Hotel comes back in another one of his more recent books. Yeah, it's interesting. King usually does that. He ties all his books together somehow. He likes to do that. I think it's in, uh, I think that's listed in, in Nosferatu, which is his son's book, Joe Hill. The main character is able to travel between different places and kind of different dimensions or different planes of existence. At one point, there is a map that connects parts of his books to his father's like she opens up the map and it's uh the one place is the treehouse of the mind which is from horns one place specifically mentions like pennywise's circus which is listed as being in in maine and i want to say i think the the overlook hotel is one of the locations listed like basically it's like any any main hotspot that's ever been like well, yeah, that's a another, lot of psychic energy or something that's another good point that you brought up stephen king's work mostly takes place in maine but not yeah. the shining this is one of the few ones that's that's out there. This and this and misery. I don't know why. I always think of misery at the same time as this because it also involves being snowed in. They're related, but that definitely leans way into the the realistic horror, not the uh, not the. Oh yeah, imaginary. I mean, I think that's also why misery is such a great movie is because it's not that far fetched at all. No, I mean it's crazy. Are we, are we talking about two Stephen King projects where the main character was a writer? <laughs> How crazy is that? I think he's always a writer. His main profession. Yeah, it's like, I don't know what the actual breakdown of numbers, but I feel like it's got to be like 90% of the characters in his books, even ones that are like it that has, you know, six or seven main characters. The main one that you're supposed to follow is an author, Billy. He's still your your main one. It's like, I don't, I don't know why it's like that. Of all the of all the things that Stephen King has like a great imagination for, it's like, it's not career choice because he can't think of any other careers for someone to have other than writer. I, I think he has, but he it's a very strong like 50 percent yeah. are writers and 50 percent are like at least a different <laughs> career of some sort yeah writing is in their blood i mean they say write what you know so that's what he knows yeah, he knows about being a writer i do like that line too where wendy says something along the lines of like oh just give it some time and, and it'll just come to you and he's like oh yeah i'm sure it'll <laughs> just come to me like it's kind of uh 
that that definitely feels like something that's been said to well i feel like that's been said to anyone that that creates something yeah like it doesn't matter if it's like writing or music like i'm sure everyone has had like that time where they've had like some sort of like creative block and someone has been like well you know if you just think about it for a while yeah i'm sure you'll come up with something <laughs> it's like i'm sure the, yeah, just the most infuriating yeah the most infuriating yeah basically just just sit around and eventually you'll think of something oh is that how it works is that uh, just sit around and i'll eventually think of something is that how that works i'm a huge fan of stephen king i i am I, and i think he's a great author probably easy to say that he's my my favorite like he's the one that i'm always like yeah i want to read the new one that comes out i want to check that out and kubrick is definitely one of the best filmmakers there's ever been and i feel from and i've said it already that from the killing on all the way to eyes wide shut he's making like a plus films like every every one of them is great uh, i'm sure if he made another horror film he would go a different sort of route he he probably wouldn't take this do the same kind of thing again but i think with the shining there's so many little pieces that resonate with me wanting to create something but not having that peace of mind to create something the sense of being a failure or not being where you want to be and then also that kind of idea of isolation would be nice just to get away from people for some time oh and then like murder i mean who doesn't love murder yeah it's a good time I don't know. I would say that I have trust issues and there is something kind of scary about your family that you, you would trust more than anybody else is the part, you know, who ends up turning against you. And honestly, from watching Dateline and stuff, that's usually what happens. It's usually somebody, you know, and it is usually pretty close to the person. It's not very often that it's, <laughs> it just happens to be like a, somebody just slightly disconnected from you it's always like the spouse kill you know yeah. that's how these things go something great about this movie that really stands out all work and no play makes jack a dull boy it really does do you think that kubrick wrote all that by himself i didn't think that he wrote it but i like i don't know i'm sure he got someone to write it for him and i'm sure that person probably did lose their mind writing it because like you can tell those are like all they look like they're all hand typed pages. It's not like photocopies or something like that. Well, I think they also did have the typewriters that did the memory back then, too. Uh, although yeah. you'd still have to go in and do ones that had different like patterns and stuff like that into it. Yeah. To, yeah. To change it. Are there better horror movies? Absolutely. Are there more interesting ones for me? Not really. Unless, and I think we're kind of both in agreement with this one, love Jaws, and Jaws is definitely a horror film. So, yeah, I, a lot of my favorite movies are horror. The Thing is something like I love. Alien, I love. Like, if I was going to make like a top 20 of my favorite films of all time, I think a lot of them would end up being horror films. Hell, I mean, I just watched, uh, before we recorded this today, I, I saw Jackass Forever. Pretty much a horror film. <laughs> the horror of aging? No, not aging. Like, the stuff that they go through is like... There are so many things, I'm like, that would be a trap in a Saw movie. But they're doing it because they think it's funny. <laughs> I think it's a good movie. I always have a, I don't know, I have a hard time ranking Kubrick's movies because they are all good like they yeah they're all good but he has his own he has his definite style but they feel separate enough that 
it, yeah, it's kind of like you could say, well, my favorite Kubrick horror movie would be The Shining, even though it's really his only one. Uh, or you could say, like, my favorite Kubrick sci-fi movie is 2001. Like, they feel so separate that that they just all feel like they're his best They're almost each a different genre his, for the most part. Yeah, he changes. Yeah, for the most part, he doesn't really do... He doesn't really repeat himself almost ever, other than, again, like, you could say he technically has three war movies, but they deal with such different aspects of war that they don't... that they feel completely independent of each other. You know, Pads of Glory really doesn't feel anything like Dr. Strangelove and neither of them feel anything like full metal jacket, but they're all definitely have his feel to them. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And even like deep down, I feel that 2001 is probably his best movie. And the shining is probably my favorite movie comedy wise. Definitely Dr. Strangelove, but then things like Spartacus, which is probably lower on my Kubrick list. It's still a pretty good movie. You know, like I don't think that it's, it's not his best, but it's still better than a lot of other people's. Actually, I watched everything up to The Shining of his, except for the one we're doing next week. I just skipped. I skipped over it. <laughs> you, you just weren't. You, you were like, I'm not going to watch this twice. No, I'm going to save it for last. Just to, just to watch it. Anyway. People will be like, what the hell? So, yeah, I watched 2001 again, and I watched Barry Lyndon again, and... They're both fucking great movies. Barry Lyndon, too. Like, I I get why some people don't like it. It is maybe one of the slowest-paced movies of all time. But some of it is great. Like, the final duel that they have is one of my favorite scenes. It stands out so strongly in my head, and it's so funny. And it wouldn't work if it wasn't a long, like, it's like a 10, 15-minute scene. If it wasn't that long, it it wouldn't have the same dramatic effects. And after this, he only makes two more movies. We'll get Full Metal Jacket and then Eyes Wide Shut, which Eyes Wide Shut between Full Metal Jacket and Eyes Wide Shut is probably like his longest break between movies of his whole career. In his unproduced Napoleon script, which he wanted to make, he definitely wanted to make Napoleon around the time that he was making Barry Lyndon. A quarter of a century goes by, he finally passes away, but... I did see an interview, too, that I thought was interesting where they asked him, they said something about him being afraid of technology. And he's like, he's like, I'm not afraid of technology. I'm afraid of airplanes. <laughs> I don't like flying, but I'm not afraid of technology. And that's Kubrick in a, in a nutshell. Impressed a lot of people, too, because he's obviously, you know, he started his career with photography and doing photography for magazines and kind of went into documentary work and then went into they're not kind of he did he went into documentary work and then he went into filmmaking and that's what he's known for and that's why we're discussing and we clearly glossed over one of his movies that we're going to be talking about next week it's in an intentional gloss over we're purposely not talking about it so we can talk about it next week that's our show Thanks for listening, everybody. We're Cinema Demore. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter to stay up to date with news and information on upcoming episodes. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, Pandora, Alexa, or iHeartRadio. It would be greatly appreciated. 
if you subscribe to our podcast on your platform of choice. We also appreciate feedback, so rate us, review us, and let us know what you think. And above all else, thank you for listening forever and ever and ever, ever and ever. Play with us, Danny.